0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that the condition of our soul is at peace and reconciliation with the holiness of Almighty God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord for every believer in this room. Lord, we recall last week's message where our minds were called to remembrance and meditation on the glorious work of redemption and the economy of the Holy Trinity Where the Father plans and predestines. Where Jesus Christ the Son and our Lord purchases our redemption. And the Holy Spirit reveals and applies these truths in our heart. For surely as the Word, your Word says in 1 Corinthians 2. That it is only the Holy Spirit that searches out the deep things of the heart and soul of Almighty God, and to think that that same Holy Spirit now indwells us, Your people, are staggering thoughts indeed. I pray, Lord, as we meditate on those glories revealed in Scripture, that they would take root and foothold in our life, that today as we open Your Word, that we would trust and feel the Spirit's work on the inside, writing its precepts on the tables thereof, working its applications through our subsequent decisions in our lives, changing us, remaking us, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who we so long to see in our lives and so look forward to seeing one day in all His manifest glory. In the meantime... Holy Spirit, be with us. Thank you, Father, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to fellowship around God's holy word again today, Palm Sunday. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 35, if you would. And let's explore some of the messianic prophecies and allusions and prefigurings that preceded Psalm Sunday Fulfilled, and the events of Calvary, the passion of Jesus Christ, and His death and resurrection and ascension. And It's going to be easy in the course of this message, if you're thinking about it, to draw connections between this ancient work and the work of Jesus Christ, and I pray to our lives today. The title of today's message is, The Blameworthy and the Blameless. Two categories of people or parties that are represented in Psalm 35. The blameworthy, those that are deserving of blame, judgment, and the blameless, those who are guiltless, who are holy. Let's read these words. And if you would follow with me, we'll begin in Psalm 35, verse 1. This is a Psalm of David. The title that might appear in your Bible is, Great is the Lord. And so it follows. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disapproved who devise evil against Me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, verse 7, they hid their net for Me. Without cause, they dug a pit for My life. Let destruction come upon Him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it. To his destruction. Verse 9. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord. exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say. "O Lord who is like you. Delivering the poor. From him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed. On my chest, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in the morning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me, wretches whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions? I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Verse 19, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, ah, ah, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O oh, Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, O oh, Lord. And my, for my cause, O oh, God, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O oh, Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, awe, oh, our heart's desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed them up. Let them be put to shame. And disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. And say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. God's Holy Word, Psalm 35. David, in this section of Scripture, as he writes his appeal, it's as if he is writing as one who has had grave injustices against him over and over again. He makes his appeal to an ultimate judge and advocate. A judge and an advocate. He is utterly incapable of error, this judge and this advocate. And David pleads his case before the omniscient and the Holy One. And the court case in this section here, ages before Christ came, looked forward to a verdict served through Christ alone that will in this day, we're reading context of David's words, and has in our day, now that Christ has come, justified and vindicated the poor in spirit. The cries of persecution three times in this chapter are lost and drowned out in shouts of triumphant victory as every last enemy of the psalmist's soul and every last enemy of God's glory is silenced and prosecuted. Silenced and And prosecuted in final judgment. And we see this fulfilled. The final judgment of Jesus Christ. Who gave His life a ransom for many. Sealed the work of redemption in resurrection itself. Defeating every last enemy of our souls in God's glory. Not just wicked men here, but everyone they represent. Including death. Which is inevitable for everyone aside from a supernatural resurrection power of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. An eternal life in Jesus Christ to look forward to. And Satan himself, the deceiver of the brethren. The one who roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. His mouth is clamped shut and wired with a steel cable of Jesus Christ's disabling power. When the work of Satan is under the heel of Christ, and though his heel was bruised, the head has received a mortal wound. And Christ crushed Satan under his feet, and every foe of God's glory and the plight of all of his elect is disabled, defeated, received just verdict, judged, and rendered of no account, ultimately, in opposing us. For of God before us in Christ, who can be against us? And the psalmist answers David all the way back in this section, In faith, indeed, no one. I'd like to give you a heading appreciating Psalm 35 in four different ways. There are perhaps four ways, at least, that came to my mind in my own study and meditation. Drinking in, in spiritual terms, this psalm this week. Four ways to appreciate this great collection of verses. Number one, we have before us a tripartite vow. A three-part vow. A commitment. Secondly, we have a legal appeal. And I've mentioned a little bit of that language already. Where this psalm is given in the context of a legal document. Thirdly, this is a psalm, and I'll maybe give you a new word here, of parousia. That's Greek for a second coming. An arrival of the sovereign and judge for a day of reckoning. It's the word in the Greek for second coming. And it means a little bit more and beyond. And we'll explore it in due course. And what you might be familiar with in the ultimate second coming of Christ... There's other other comings in Scripture. And the psalmist knows this to to be a fact of redemptive history. And he is seeking to be aligned with the wishes of a holy God to be found on the right side on that day of reckoning. And he's also wishing for the scales of justice to be righted according to God's glory and righteousness. And he's hoping for that day to arrive soon. The parousia, the coming in judgment. And then finally... Appreciating Psalm 35 as a messianic prelude. That is something that alludes to, before He came, Jesus Christ and His mighty work, especially in this psalm, His suffering. First of all, appreciating Psalm 35 as a tripartite, a three-part vow. Let me remind you of last week's message, 2 Corinthians, at the close of the book, we were meditating on in the message and my family was this week following in family worship how Paul says goodbye. How does an apostle with limited words ability to write and not knowing if these would be his last words or not and as far as we know they were to a church close his letter. He doesn't just say goodbye, see you later, have a good one. He says in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Last week we contemplated that goodbye. That sacred goodbye if you will. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We contemplated that as a Trinitarian benediction. God three in one. And Paul says farewell by pleading that the church would be blessed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This idea and pattern in Scripture is all throughout, although it's not as easily seen in the Old Testament, nevertheless, the pattern of God's disclosure in three is seen over and over again. And I would argue that in Psalm 35, we have a tripartite, a, set, a way of looking at this psalm and follow me if you would as we explore it again in 35 verse 1 the psalmist opens with a plea to the lord he's saying contend the lord with those who contend with me fight against those who fight against me and we can see and feel in these words as we read them that he's under distress that he's in between a rock and a hard place in David's life, there certainly could have been many occasions that would warrant this psalm. In the life of any believer, we find ourselves crying out for rescue, for answered prayer, for God to provide our needs. And we feel by the circumstances knocking at our door that if He doesn't answer soon, we could be the end of us. And this was how the psalmist no doubt felt, what David had on his mind but as he continues to write, we get to the close of this first section, perhaps, in verses 9 and 10. And notice the difference from verse 8. He's asking for the destruction to come upon him, the one who's chasing him unjustly. says, when he does not know it, let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. And then David shifts. He goes from a request and an asking for judgment to a praise and a worship. Refrain. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, deserving the poor, from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. David is vowing upon the answer to this prayer to give all the glory to the God who alone can set him free from this predicament he finds himself in. Once his enemy, his nemesis, has fallen into his own pit and is destroyed by the snare, when the Lord sovereignly turns the enemy's weapons against David's own foes, then David commits to the Lord, he vows, My soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. David vows to praise the Lord upon the answer to this prayer. He will not be like the hypocrite who cries out to God in desperation and forgets Him once He's healed. Do you remember the 1 and 12, was it, of the lepers who returned in thankfulness? He was the one who completed His vow to worship Christ upon His healing of leprosy, a mortal disease. Now, I'm sure any one of the dozen, if you had asked them prior to, will you worship the man, the God that has the power to set you free? You could be assured that by His healing touch, you would be healed. And certainly, 12 out of 12, I'm, I'm sure, would respond, of course, yes and amen. But notice only one was touched, not just on the skin surface, but to the heart, and returned and kept his vow. And David was a man who had a heart like that. When David was set free and delivered, he would offer true and legitimate sacrifices to the God that set him free. When David's enemies were undone and destroyed before him, he would sometimes mourn even Saul himself's own death, a man who chased him, a death wish, put a bounty on his head. When Saul is eventually undone, ultimately by the sword of God's judgment, David grieved the loss because he recognized that even though he was his enemy, he was nevertheless the Lord's anointed. So, David cared more about God's glory than he did his own plight, and thus his vow was if you rescue me, and when you rescue me, better said, I will worship you. David repeats this three times. Those first ten verses is that first part in this tripartite vow distinction that we see in this chapter. He goes on to plead his case again by saying, false witnesses have arisen against him in verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft and so on. He continues with his plea until this shift again in verse 18. I thank you in the great congregation. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. This right after David had Grieved and cried out to the Lord in lament in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. My precious precious life from the lions. The picture is there. The vulnerability of a weak and defenseless individual who's about to be torn in pieces by stronger, ferocious, hungry prey with fangs. And right after David says that, he interrupts himself almost in his lament, with this second vow. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. We've said this more than once, because David says it more than once. But David, a man acquainted to some degree with much grief and suffering, had a high value of the congregation of God's people. When David was fleeing for his life, for what seemed like most of his life. You read the accounts in First and Second Samuel and so on. And Kings, I believe. When you read those accounts of David's own history, you can understand why he had such a longing and appreciation for what the congregation of the like-minded, faithful represented. Here was a place where those that surrounded him were no longer the enemies of his God anymore but were co worshipers with Him, mingling their tongue with His to offer in a synergistic wave of almighty praise, power, and glory to the one who is worthy of it. David longed to draw on the spirits of those next to him who also were after the Lord's own heart, who would tabernacle together and offer praise in the congregation of God's people. And David made certain that in asking for relief, he was also making a vow that upon his ability, his freedom, and his safety to actually congregate with God's people, he would in fact do so, and he would make the most of every moment that provided. I will thank you. In the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Now I've asked the Lord to deepen my affections and desire for the fellowship of all of us together. One small representation in providence where this can be true of us. A small throng, mind you, but nevertheless more than one or a few who can gather together in the common cause of exalting the Lord that delivered us from our trials this week. And should the Lord give us grace, gas in our car, safety to arrive, and the will to come in fellowship, may we, like David, so desire and so take advantage of every opportunity to praise Him in the congregation of the Beloved. And may we fulfill our vows to do exactly that. And finally, in closing, in David's tripartite psalm here, he says at the very end, after verse, well, 26, we'll read, Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed to shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Then he says in verse 27, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. And one final note in these three sections that begin with a plea and end with praise. That is section 1 through 10, verses 1 through 10. Secondly, verses 11 through 18. And thirdly, verses 19 through 28. Notice that in the close, with each vow of praise, there's an escalation of the context of that worship. It gets bigger and bigger, better and better. First of all, David says, May all my bones say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. David is saying in poetic language, May every part of me resonate with the joy that ought to overflow when God has intervened on my behalf. May every part of me, the core of my being, every aspect of my thoughts and my thinking and my mortal form be offered as a living sacrifice and praise and worship to Almighty God. Then David goes on, and we find him not alone, but in the congregation in vow number 2 in verse 18. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. One step better, an escalation here. Not just praising in distress in the field, in a cave, as a fugitive, as an escapee, running for his life. Where nevertheless, he's praying all his members praise him, but he's looking forward to the time of his he will vow upon the opportunity God makes where all his members will praise the Lord among the congregation. And then number three and the escalation is the final section where we find that everyone is praising the Lord with him. Verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is the Lord who de- delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. David prays and vows that every member of his body would praise the Lord. And not only that, but that every member, should he have and when he has the opportunity, would praise the Lord in the great throng, the great congregation of the saints. That's his longing. And finally, he prays not just that every member of his body would praise But indeed, in New Testament language, every member of the body of Christ would praise with Him. And that is the ultimate glorious picture of worship. And we see the final fulfillment of that in glory eternal in the book of Revelation. Those pictures that look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the language which tells us that the sound of our voices, mixed with the ones who've gone before and the ones who will come after, collectively rival the roar of Niagara in the ears of everyone listening. The sound of mighty waterfalls of praise mixes together as worthy incense before the throne of Almighty God. There's a throng there. And that throng praises the Lord with every member of their being and with every member of Christ's being, if you will. Every member of Christ's body. That is a picture of joyful fulfillment that is hard to imagine its equal. If anything lesser vies in our affections for competition for that place, may we repent of it and make our plea with David, O Lord. Change my desires to love what you love and say to my soul, I am your salvation. Number two, let's appreciate Psalm 35 as a legal appeal. This language is important and it's replete throughout. Psalm 35 is framed in legal or covenantal document language. David is not asking amiss. He's asking rightly. David understands the terms and conditions of reconciliation and relationship with the holy God. David knows that you can't just beg and plead on your own merit and find favor with him. He knows that certain covenant stipulations must be met, must be met. So therefore, in the original language at verse 1, when David says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. He's saying, Sue these guys. Get a lawsuit going against your covenant foes. Contend in the language, the original language I'm told, is initiate a legal action against the offending party. Bring a case. Bring a lawsuit. And if God himself was to subpoena a party for a lawsuit, to bring them to his courtroom to say, I'm pressing these charges against you. Indeed, what man, what prosecutor, what lawyer can stand in his presence? No one. He is perfect in holiness, the only one capable of perfect justice. And he judges rightly, and to this power, David makes his appeal. David obviously finds himself in faith on the right side of God's justice. And he has a certain confidence because he had a condition of heart that bowed before the Lordship of Almighty God. And in this position of faith, David pleaded and contended with God on just grounds. He knew he was aligning himself with righteousness when he said, Contend, O Lord, for those who contend against me. Secondly, we might note that David uses the term cause. That those who have problems with him and and, and have objections and grievances with him, that they don't have just cause says in verse 7, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause, he repeats it again, they dug a pit for my life. David understands that he is being unjustly accused and pursued by those aligned with the devil, the accuser of the brethren. But the devil pursues the elect with no just cause. If we are rendered righteous in Christ's blood, and so we can say with the same gospel authority as David and if it could be said more so at the fullness of revelation at our fingertips and tips, and written on the tables of our heart that the enemy of our soul pursues us without just cause. Lord, I ask that you would bring the forces of the enemy that are hounding me, convincing me that I'm guilty of things that you have justified me of, bringing condemnation on my soul A kind of guilt and weight and heaviness that only Christ's shoulders are strong enough to bear. May I realize the covenant terms that I am holy and justified in Christ and therefore that old voice of the wicked one knocking at the door of my heart can be rejected in this court case because he has no standing, no just cause. And of course in this case, This enemy that David was facing sought to take his life, verse 4. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. You see, they had wicked intent and strategy, premeditated malice, and they were actually working actively and there was evidence of their wickedness. Let destruction come upon him, David says in verse 8, when he does not know it, and let the net that that he hid ensnare him, let him fall into it to his destruction the bible has said written in stone god's words by his own finger thou shalt not murder and those who pursued david would mur- with murderous intent david knew they didn't just stand against him but they stood against the law of almighty god they stood against the immovable rock of salvation and therefore they had no standing in their cause against him Thirdly, in the language of legal appeal, we've talked about contending, we've talked about cause. There's also a false witness that is set up. Verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up, they ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. And here we have a breaking of the ninth commandment, where the Lord wrote, on Sinai in stone for all his people for all time to see the standards of his holy righteousness. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So as David stands as an object of false witness in this court case, he finds safety and refuge in God's holiness and in these dictates that are unchangeable even as God himself never fails, never changes. And fourthly, in this legal language, we see a reference in the context here to a retributive or a proportional justice. We see in Exodus 21, 23 through 25, that famous law code, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so on. In Latin, you might have heard the term in legal language, lex taliones. In Western law, in our history and tradition, this was the Latin form of justice must be proportional to the crime. And in this context, David pleads his case as well. He says in verse 1 again, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise up for my help. Draw spear and javelin against my pursuers. So for those who have pursued David, he's asking for a proportional judgment to be levied against them. What does this tell us? It tells us that God's judgments are righteous and true. And David understands and promotes that. David is not out to elevate himself as God by creating a law unto himself. Eventually, he would have had the power to do that in some limited human measure. After all, he would be king of Israel. But this king, this magistrate was different. He understood that he lived under the rule of the higher, ultimate, perfect, holy magistrate. God. And so justice would be defined by David according to God's terms, not his. And on these grounds, he makes his appeal. And it goes on here to illustrate the contrast as well. Whereas David asks for God to rightly pursue his righteousness and uphold his glory by delivering just punishment for what is a wrong that truly deserves it. Those who stand against God and against David don't do any such thing. They instead, verse 12, repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. Do You see that the enemies of God, as we can rightly interpret them here, even as they're listed as the enemies of David, they turn justice on its head. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. May we get back to the Holy Scriptures and our concepts of what is righteous, good, good. Holy, just, pure, true, of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any uh, praise, stand on these things. Meditate on these things. Think about these things. Pray according to these things. I pray that the book that we're reading today would indicate to us, would instruct us in the ways of justice. That we might stand where God stands and not independent of Him and therefore must be judged ourselves in order for his law to be proven true. And finally, there's language of vindication under this legal appeal. You can understand Psalm 35 as a legal appeal where David, and according to the title of this message indicating that's the blameless party, is asking for retribution against the blameworthy party when he says in verse 24, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. And it's so important when we read these sections of scripture in David's writings to understand that when David says, Vindicate me, it's not a self centered prayer. When he says, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, David understands that he and only needs to be aligned, and only when he is aligned with God's righteousness, when he himself is in right standing with God, can two prayers be answered at the same time. One, that he would be saved, and two, that God would be glorified. How many prayers are offered every day, all this world over, for salvation of some sort? How many pleas to whatever power may be are offered for safety, hope, comfort, security, peace, love, joy, happiness, prosperity, wealth, whatever, future, to be predictable and and fun, appealing? The only way that those prayers are legitimate and are heard by the Almighty is if in answering them, God can also be glorified. And therefore, the only legitimate prayers come from the heart of one who is in right standing with God. And in right standing with God, I mean that you trust in the blood of Jesus Christ alone to justify you. So that your legal appeal, when you pray, God, save me, intervene, answer this prayer, Two prayers can be answered in one. That you would be saved from whatever circumstance you're going through. Yes, it's good for us to pray that we be delivered from temptation. Pray for our daily bread. But ultimately, that we would be saved from the just penalty our sin would otherwise deserve. But the only way those can be answered and God to be glorified is if we are in Christ Jesus, justified by His blood. And this psalm speaks to the legal ramifications of the gospel we can learn that in David's Psalm 35. Thirdly, appreciating Psalm 35 as a psalm of parousia, second coming. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. There's language there in the New Testament. And this word, parousia, in the Greek is used in the original in this section. And I think you'll notice with me parallels as we read in 2 Thessalonians about another coming of the Lord that Paul is speaking to years and years later. In beginning with 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, listen to this language. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Do you notice the similarity already? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's, Psalm, it's almost Psalm 35 word for word. Certainly idea for idea. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Second Thessalonians since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, in verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you have only heard, in most of the Christian proposition and sermonizing that we might be familiar with in evangelicalism today. God is a loving God. He's totally different in the New Testament than the judgmental, fearful God we see in the old. If that is your concept and idea of a soft, approachable, loving, fuzzy God, we need to get our mind rearranged according to the categories of Scripture. The language in the old is repeated in the new. And there is a fearful sense of imminent reckoning, of a judgment day, a parousia, a second coming. And those words should be associated with a reckoning, a judgment, an inevitable and inexorable summons. That means you can't change it. There will be a day when everyone answers before the Lord. And Paul is telling us, and David is telling us, that on some level the faithful actually look forward to that day. Why? Because God will be glorified when the balances are righted. And they will be saved. It's a fearful idea in one sense, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, because when that day of judgment comes, surely there will be many who will be walking in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Surely there have been many who are going about their daily affairs. And a sudden judgment came. And the hour where they least expected. And the thief in the night came. He saved his own. And he brought judgment on those who were insolent, rebellious, procrastinating, self-serving, and denying him. Paul longs for this day. But Paul was affiliated with afflictions like David. How long for the day when in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately God's glory would be vindicated. He says in verse nine, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marvelled at among those who have believed, because our testimony to you, because of our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that we can keep on without losing heart Giving the loving appeal of the gospel to those who yet remain outside the covenant community of Christ. The reason that we can do that with endurance, even when we're afflicted physically, mentally and otherwise, persecuted, is because we know that there is a coming parousia. And that gives us a sense of fear, as Jean portrayed for us so well in that local example. That man had a calling. Before the judgment seat of God, the Lord knows where he stood. But just four weeks after Gene met him, he was standing, giving a reckoning for his whole life. The only justifying power that would usher that man into glory was the life-saving, soul-purifying blood of Christ. But the reality of that judgment, whether by natural death, in this life, by the soon return of Jesus Christ, or a big event, a cataclysmic intervention into history, as from time to time God is wont to bring, that kind of consciousness builds within his people a faithfulness to keep doing good, to keep working in faith, and recognizing it's not for a powerless God that we serve, but it's one who has holiness in his hand, justice in his hand, and only in his great mercy and loving kindness through Christ alone can he extend And so we serve. Second, Thessalonians continues with this type of language. This was a church that was under persecution, much like David was when he wrote his psalm, presumably. And thus these words are so similar because they are a scriptural source of comfort. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion, speaking to the opposing parties that would oppose the church just like David's enemies opposed him, and therefore God's anointed, so that they may believe what is false, In order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to this. He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The relationship between judgment and salvation is very close in Scripture. That is to say, the judgment that comes when the Lord returns is two things at once. It is the salvation of His people and it's the judgment of His enemies all in the same event. And it will happen when the wicked least expect it. But it will be welcomed by a faithful remnant who lived out of the comfort that one day that day would come. And we are called to work for the kingdom of God under that kind of sense, that kind of context, that kind of consciousness that there is a soon coming day where the salvation of His people and the judgment of His enemies will be accomplished in the same event. David hoped and prayed for that event. So did Paul. And he offered the truth and the reality of that event sometimes in limited measure through history but for everyone, ultimately on the final day, that was the comfort, that was the hope for the people. So this psalm of Perusia, the psalm that declares that there's comfort in God's judgment, decrees to us, again, relationship between judgment and salvation is in Scripture one and the same event, and also there's New Testament parallels, and also it helps us think about the enemies of God. Have you ever been a little disconcerted when you read the what's called imprecatory language of the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, imprecatory means wishing a curse upon someone. Your prayer is that God would curse his enemies in an imprecatory prayer. That's really, needless to say, a politically incorrect and countercultural notion for us today. Have you ever been uncomfortable by that language? I remember in the past, I didn't preach much from the Psalms because I was uncomfortable with those ideas. But if you're uncomfortable with those ideas, you're uncomfortable with a large portion of Scripture. We need to understand how this language works and what it means for us. I think Spurgeon helps in this regard For me, it's a great way to summarize some of David's themes that are woven into this psalm and others that pray for judgment to come against God's enemies. Spurgeon says this, Viewing sinners as men, we love them and seek their good. That's more familiar to us. In verses 12 and 14, it seems David understood this. He said, They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my mother as one who laments my brother or as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in the morning. So here we have a picture. When David considers his enemies on the human level, he recognizes it's by grace alone he's anointed and therefore saved. And he loves his enemies. And he seeks to do good to those who despitefully use him, as Christ instructs all of his own to do. So David does that. He views sinners as men, and he loves them, and he seeks their good. But we don't just leave the concept there. We go on to add, and these are Spurgeon's words, but regarding them as enemies of God, that is, those who stand against Christ's glory, when we regard them as enemies of God, we cannot think of them With anything but detestation. It is right when we consider those who hate God as his enemies to have a sense that's detestable. Deplorable and indeed worthy of judgment. That God's name might be defended in their destruction. He says a loyal desire for the confusion of their devices. And a loyal desire for the confusion of their devices. Because no loyal subject can wish well to rebels. That's a great quote. No loyal subject can wish well to rebels. So there we have on the both hand how we ought to seek the lost, recognizing in grace and by grace alone is Christ offered and we ourselves have been saved. But also have this sense that when it comes to God's enemies, we think of it on an eternal scale, we align ourselves with God. And we do not run the risk of having a false idea of love that is extra covenantal and says that there's nothing really to fear because God loves everybody all the time, all the same, everywhere. There is a distinction between those that God has set His affections upon and those that remain at enmity with Him. God alone knows the great throng that will be ransomed into His good graces. But the fact remains that no loyal subject can wish well to rebels. Therefore, we must wish that they would come to Christ and join us in worshiping Him. And it is a call, ultimately, for us to be more forthright in evangelism. But what will we gain in our appeal if we don't lose this concept of parousia, of a judgment that could happen tomorrow or the next day? We don't lose a God that's to be feared and a day of reckoning that's imminent and a calling that is a shout. Because the man is drowning. And it's a forceful intervention, not so much a gentle coup. Because the flames of hell are licking about the ankles of the justly deserving. And if we could just jerk someone from the precipice by reminding them that they deserve that fate, and in Christ alone they can be saved, let us do it. I believe that Paul and David, indeed Christ, Holy Spirit, would find it a biblical approach. And finally, we can appreciate Psalm 35 as a messianic prelude. Let's shift from that emphasis on judgment to the emphasis on Christ's suffering that actually made possible our deliverance from that very judgment. As we march through David's record of what he endured under these conditions, we find again that this is more than a journal of the persecuted. This is a journal of Christ. This is more than a journal of a saint that suffered for God's name. This is a journal of one who prefigured the plight of the Messiah, the passion of Jesus Christ. Today's Palm Sunday. It was that day with a certain ominous ring to the Christian because even as he reads the record in Scripture of palm fronds waving and cloaks being spread before the worthy king arriving on the lowly donkey, He knows where he's headed. That is the Christian. The fullness of revelation now. and Scripture revealed to us. We know that Jesus Christ has set his face as flint. To go to Jerusalem to fulfill the will of the Father. With unwavering commitment. But nevertheless a commitment that tried the Son of Man and Son of God. To the core of his being Father. If it be thy will could you let this cup pass from me. And since the will was indeed that he would suffer, so he continued on the Via Dolorosa as it were. And what did he endure? Well, first of all, he endured those who set upon their hearts their intent to destroy him. Matthew 12, verse 14, we've been studying recently. Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. He interrupted the power structure and these Pharisees saw him as a threat to their own ideals, worldview, and rule. And immediately it says, from that day on, they set their mind to destroy him. Matthew 12, verse 4. And so the intent to destroy David is clear in this record. He says, let them be put to shame and dishonor who who seek after my life. In their attempts to destroy him, Matthew 22, verses 15 through 17, we read of the Pharisees' attempts to entrap Jesus. Do you remember these moments? in conversation where presumably they'd be in a large group and the Pharisees were looking to get Jesus, paint him into a corner so whatever he answered their question with would incite a riot in his followers to join their side in destroying him. This was one of these moments in Matthew 22, verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. Teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion. For we are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Depending on how he answers, either the Herodians be upset, who're aligned with the civil authority, or the people will be upset, who sees Rome as an occupier. What are they doing here? Well, in their intent, in their intent to destroy Christ, they're trapping plot, seeking to trap him, they're plotting to entangle him in this moment, and David, in his prelude to the Messiah, in this messianic prophecy that is written years and years before endured very much the same attempts. And again, chapter 35 and Psalms, verse 7, Without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Jesus had those who were intent to destroy him. Jesus was entrapped by the, or they attempted to entrap him just as they attempted to entrap David. Jesus had false witnesses that were offered by the naysayers in the court. Eventually, David writes in 35.11, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. And here we're just going down the chronological events of the passion of Jesus Christ. In Matthew's gospel, this is recorded over in chapter 26, verses 59 through 60. This is the time after Jesus' arrest where he's standing before the civil and ecclesiastical authorities. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And so, by the testimony of those who were breaking the law of God, bearing false witness against the only perfect man, they were seeking to establish a case in the civil court to justify murdering the Son of God. Just as those who were pursuing David were seeking false witness to justify murdering the anointed king at this time. And so it goes. David for his enemies. I was grieved. For my friend or my brother is one who laments his mother. And I bow down in the morning. Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Luke twenty-three thirty-nine, He prays that famous prayer. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. A prayer that can only be answered on the payment of the very death that he was experiencing. Incrementally, moment by moment, as he uttered those words. David was mocked and exploited. Again, we have this account in verse 16 of Psalm 35. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. They make sport, they make food of him. They exploit him, they take advantage of him, and they gnash at him with their teeth. In Matthew's account, this is listed as well. We go through these dark days of Jesus Christ, hanging on the dark day of Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross and the events That preceded his death. And there were those who mocked. And scorned the Lord of glory. There were those who took advantage of him. There were those who. Played lots for his clothing. Who exploited him. Who used them for their own benefit. And as we see this record progress. Matthew 27. 35 for instance it says. And they had crucified him. When they had crucified him. They divided his garments. And they cast lots. Later, in verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, that is the power structures, both Rome, imperial Rome, and the elites of the Jews, mocked him, saying, verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is king of Israel. Let him come. Now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And so David, as the anointed king of Israel, endured this same kind of profanity. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. David writes, my precious life from lions. And finally, there's one more account of this taunting hatred. That we read in verses 19 and 21 of Psalm 35. David prays, Let not those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my th- flows, and let not those who wink the eye, who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. Their open mouth, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, Ah, oh, ah, oh, our eyes have seen it. And you see here what David endured. Lines up event by event with what God Jesus Christ endured, God the Son, in the events following Palm Sunday. And so this psalm is a tripartite vow. It is a great example of a believer who prays rightly before the Lord. It is a legal appeal that illustrates that God's laws upheld in his plan for justice, judgment, and salvation. It is a hope and a second coming. A return of the Lord in judgment and salvation for his people. And it is a messianic prelude. It is a message of the gospel appearing before Jesus himself arrived on the scene. And therefore, by way of application, how can we take refuge in this psalm? Well, just imagine those in Scripture who have gone through hardship, how they might have taken refuge in it. Imagine Joseph, for instance, how this psalm might have ministered to him. David writes, for without cause they hid a net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him, let the net that he is hid and snare him. And so Joseph knew the depths of the pit and betrayal by his own family. But God used that great sin against him for his own glory in the salvation of his people The theme of God's sovereignty and using sin for the salvation of His people is one that blows our minds. But yet if the Son of God had not been crucified, the hands of wicked men, there would be no hope for us today. And so in Psalm 35, we're reminded of these events. Imagine how this psalm might have comforted Daniel in the lion's den. The profane mockers had convinced the king to make an unjust law. Just like David had said the malicious witnesses rise up. How long O Lord will you look on David might have cried from the depths of despair as he was being cast to the lions in that cave. Rescue me from their destruction my precious life from the lions. Not just metaphorically but literally in that case. Imagine Jeremiah speaking as it was a voice and as he was something of a voice in the wilderness. Not a single convert virtually in his ministry, yet echoing the eternal truths of God. They threw him in the pit. They made fun of him. They brought legal charges against him. Jeremiah could have used this psalm. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. And what comfort this psalm would have been for our crucified Lord. And our Lord, after Palm Sunday, As he, one by one, fulfilled this psalm. As he endured those with the intent to destroy. Who sought to entrap him at every turn. Who raised up false witnesses against him. As he forgave his enemies. As he was mocked and exploited. As the taunting hatred of the voices of the accuser jeered out from the crowd. For us today... Perhaps of all these people, save Christ himself, certainly all the saints of old, we are even more strategically positioned in redemptive history to make good use of this psalm. Behold, we can realize the fulfillment of this prelude in Christ. We can confess our faith in the new covenant. And in that understanding, we can endure trial and triumph. Because our ascended Lord and King endured trial and triumph. And we can endure these things as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. Anticipating the day when what David longed for will be manifest in the fullest degree. A great congregation, a mighty throng that has been ransomed by the blood of Christ. Will sing praises to the Lamb of glory in heaven being made perfectly white, wearing the righteousness of Christ all day long, an eternal day, with no sunset. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, what glorious truths are contained in your scriptures. I pray that you would write them on the table of our heart. I pray that whatever... represents you in your glory, might stay with us and encourage us and strengthen and buttress us in our faith that we've learned from your holy word today. Anything superfluous, anything that is dead weight, that human voices added, I pray that it would be swept aside and all that you might be glorified. We recognize that you are our king. You are our sovereign. You are the Lord of glory and only in you is our salvation. Teach us, Lord Jesus, to heed the warnings, the admonition and instruction, Lord, even the attitudes that your word conveys to us so that we might pray rightly, believe rightly, serve rightly, worship rightly, and have desires in accordance with what you have preordained for us to walk in. Those good works that give you glory, that are the judgment of sin and our salvation as our sin is washed away in the precious blood of Christ. In closing, during this Easter season, if it might afford any of us the opportunity with our family to share the good news of Jesus Christ, I pray that we would do so with a sense of the fear of the Lord and the great compassion that Jesus Christ's sacrificial death represents so that you can be glorified as sinners repent and place their faith in you. Lord, in all of this we ask that you would be mightily glorified, that your name might advance even as your kingdom grows by leaps and bounds in this age, looking forward to the day when you establish your rule in such a way that no enemy ever knocks on the door of our heart or soul again. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.